You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Thank you for coming uh, to this afternoon session. My name is David Schlossberg. I am the director of the Sydney Environment Institute and a professor of environmental politics here at the University of Sydney. Before we begin, I want to do, as we always do, and acknowledge that we are on unceded land of the Gadigal people of the EOR nation. Uh, it's on their land the University of Sydney is built, and I do want to pay respect uh, to elders past, present, and emerging. I also want to acknowledge, again, as we always do, that this has been a place of learning, this intersection of these tracks that have become City Road and Parramatta Road. This has been an intersection, a place of gathering, a place of learning for over 60,000 years, a place of learning about the intersection between human and non-human people and environment. I also want to acknowledge, especially since we're talking about salmon and acorns, so we're talking about food and long-term food histories and, and uh, colonization, that not only is the University of Sydney built on the lands of the Gadigal Nation, but the University of Sydney is built with the land of the Gadigal Nation, using shell middens uh, as mortar to literally hold the colonial buildings together uh, on this campus. And I think that's a really important part of this relationship between people and place for us to recognize. So here's how this is going to work. This is uh, a discussion and a celebration of Kai Norgaard's uh, new book, a beautiful book, a salmon-colored book, fittingly, uh, Salmon and Acorns Feed Our People, a Colonialism, Nature, and Social Action. Uh, Kari, we have known here at the Sydney Environment Institute for a while. Uh, Kari and I have this, there's this weird history. Uh, I actually knew Kari's dad before I knew Kari. I've co-authored with Richard Norgaard, who is one of the founders of uh, the field of ecological economics. Uh, and then I just started hearing more and more about this person who was writing about denial, someone in environmental sociology. Uh, and I read this book uh, and was just completely blown away. And Kari has just garnered this reputation in the past decade of being one of the leading theorists about what it means to deny, not the sort of, not only the sort of classic denialism uh, that we still have in this country, thanks PM, um, but the kind of denialism that we live every day as we make tragedy invisible. And it's that theme, I think, that comes back in this book, this sort of making invisible, making the everyday invisible, making the tragic invisible that is a part of this book. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, but Kari's going to talk first. She's going to give about a 20-minute uh, talk about the book. She'll show uh, a couple of a couple or one short video, two short videos about her partners in the writing of this book. One of the things I do want to note, uh, I have not seen this before, and it just really makes me think. This book is, is copyrighted um, by both Kari and the Karak tribe of Northern California. They own the copyright together to that book, and I think that's an incredible gesture. Um, so Kari will talk a little bit about the book, and then we'll sit um, with our own Jacqueline Troy uh, and myself and have a discussion, and then, of course, we'll open it up uh, to all of you. So Kai Norgaard is a professor, associate professor, professor, deservedly so, uh, of sociology and environmental studies at the University of Oregon. This is another one of these weird connections uh, that, uh, that we have. 
she is, again, well-known, I think one of the core people, not just in environmental sociology, but in environmental social science uh, more broadly, and one of these incredible interdisciplinary scholars. We're very happy at the Sydney Environment Institute uh, to, ha to have Kari again. Of course, I have to thank everyone at the Sydney Environment Institute um, for helping with this, um, but most importantly, our deputy director, Michelle St. Anne, who has created an entire festival of Kari Norgard for her visit uh, around a number of different issues that where Kari's work and Michelle's work and the work of the Institute and the scholars here overlap. It's been an amazingly curated uh, week, and it continues uh, on Wednesday evening with another event specifically uh, on violence in plain sight. So I'll shut up for now. I'll be back. But let me introduce proudly um, and genuinely proudly introduce Professor Kari Norgard. Thank you, David. That's very sweet. And, um, and uh, definitely to Michelle, wherever I'm not seeing where you are in the room, there you are. Um, and uh, yeah, the, it's just really, really lovely to be back here. And um, uh, Sydney Environmental Institute is um, such a force, has been such a force in terms of thinking about environmental justice um, as an issue. And um, certainly, I feel so cared for and welcomed. And it's really wonderful to be back. Um, I also want to um, uh, acknowledge um, that my words and our thinking today is happening um, in a land that is uh, Gadigal land and, um, and acknowledge the work of um, uh, the, the presence and the um, intelligence and the vision of elders past, present, and emerging. And um, this is something that I'm happy to hear, uh, David says, as we always do, but it's only recently happening more in the United States um, many uh, within my own discipline of sociology, which this book is really um, speaking back to, um, is something that is really only beginning to happen. There's a handful, there's been a wonderful uh, coalition of um, uh, Native and non-Native scholars who've been really pushing our organization to do this, and certainly it does not happen commonly at the University of Oregon yet. However, again, there's people who are, um, uh, that will change and is changing. Um, so it is, yeah, the, um, it's really an honor to have, uh, this is my first uh, time speaking about the book, and to have each of you very esteemed, you know, long, very esteemed scholars who've been working on environmental justice, David's history working on environmental justice, and Jacqueline just meeting you more recently, but the level of your language work and your work as indigenous scholar here at this institution, people are so lucky to have you, so I am so delighted to have met you just four days ago or something, and um, and it's really an honor to have um, this. Like I said this is my first book, uh, the uh, first book talk. I'm doing one at home next week, or the timing is a little maybe the week after next. I'm slightly confused on time. Still everything um, happening, um, and um, and then also for sure with my colleague who I'll introduce um, in a couple different ways in a minute here. So um, there's a lot of things um, that. Uh, I could say about this, it's been a long time in the making, and um, it does not feel finished. As a non-Native person trying to um, do something that feels useful or appropriate vis-a-vis uh, -vis Indigenous knowledge, I think it's a tricky terrain and an ongoing process. And uh, one of the things um, is that I'm always making mistakes. So one just hopes to try to do something useful, and it's, again, an ongoing process. 
But one of the things, um, this is a book that's an outgrowth of um, the policy work I've been doing with the Karuk tribe. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and it's a way of speaking back, uh, attempting to, if I dare use the word decolonizing, which is a lot of politics, certainly sociology as a discipline is in need of decolonizing. And uh, whether or not this book is part of that effort maybe is not for me to say. Um, but certainly it's written from a place of outrage. And it started initially, um, that outrage was channeled towards the lack of engagement sociologists have had with the natural environment. And I don't know how many of you are sociologists, so I'll also say that this is not only, it's you know, thinking about the social sciences broadly. And it started thinking about how the natural environment matters for social life, for political power, for culture, for sovereignty, for identity, for many of the things that I think are most important to um, my life as a human, and um, shape life. And then began, as I got more into it, um, a lot more emphasis. And as I started learning more from indigenous peoples and other scholars about um, uh, settler colonialism in, in general, which my discipline barely utters the words. It's been used once in the top journal um, of sociology um, by a non-native scholar got it in there. So um, this is um, this work, the book is uh, an outgrowth of a lot of policy work. I've been doing policy work for the Kruk tribe, with the Kruk tribe, since about 03. And I'll talk a little bit about that in one of the chapters. Um, uh, David mentioned the, that the book is copyright from the tribe. A lot of the work I've done is around knowledge sovereignty. And um, so it just seemed incredibly important that this book happen in the best way possible. So it went through tribal council review several times. And um, anyone been in Karuk territory? It's in the middle Klamath Basin. David maybe has. Um, it's, it's, um, this is our map showing, sort of in yellow, showing the tribal territory. And it goes a little bit up into Oregon, but it mostly it's in Northern California in actually a very remote area um, from the traditional area, the sort of the center uh, of Karuk territory. It's about a two-hour drive to a stoplight anywhere. Many, many people, a um, high percentage, live off the grid because there is no electric electrical service. So that has a whole dimension of environmental justice politics. And this work is an outgrowth really specifically of a collaboration and friendship that has changed uh, both of our lives and our families' lives um, between Ron Reed. And it, it doesn't feel um, Ron would actually love to be here, and maybe the next time I come, we'll come together. Um, when I spoke at the Native American Indigenous Studies Association um, in Aotearoa uh, earlier this winter, um, I spoke with his youngest son. So it feels um, this is work that's really been about us. And to that end, um, we have a video clip a little bit that is Ron's mother speaking in Karuk, and it shows him and his um, kids, um, and he speaks at the end, uh, dip net fishing. So it's just two minutes. We dedicate this to the spirit people who walked before us and to the people who will walk after us. The first spirit people from the center of the world netted the salmon. At Karamin was a spirit man. He made the salmon. He put them in a pool. 
Ukram Kram to Tomahian Karinich. When they got bigger, he put them in the river to go downriver to the ocean. When they returned, they were caught by a dip They taught us how to fish. That's why we do it this way. The first spirit people gave us the river and the salmon to survive. That's why we, Karuk, are called the river people. This is what we live for right here. We like to give our fish to the elders. It shows a great amount of respect. Our elders are very important. Our babies are very important. And what we do this, this generation, our generation, is what's going to carry us on. That gives you a little bit of a feel of um, what, uh, how salmon are connected to um, showing the connection between the generations, the elders, um, the importance in terms of uh, the creation story that was shared, and, um, uh, and just a little bit of Ron and sort of who he is. And again, he's um, a, dear, a dear friend. I um, also want to acknowledge um, on the left um, Bill Tripp, who is the um, director, director of Ecocultural Revitalization for the Kruk Tribe. He's been the main person I've been working with more recently on fire policy. I'll show you, we'll share a little bit of video at the end of, about some of that work. Um, on the top is Dr. Frank Lake, who's a Karuk descendant and U.S. Forest Service biologist, who really has been at the intersection of indigenous knowledge and Western science. Um, not to mention working for the agency, which for Karuk people is considered the occupying force. Um, there's Ron below, and then on the um, right is Leif Hillman, who is the founder and director of the tribe's Department of Natural Resources. And also, all of these people are simply extraordinary, and there's probably more and more people I should be adding. I should redo this slide and get a few more uh, faces up there. But the work that I do has been very much informed by the thinking of these individuals and many other people. And um, for me, it's been about uh, thinking about what is it that my discipline um, needs to better understand so as to not be uh, ridiculously offensive and um, useless vis-a-vis -vis many things. Um, so again, um, so this book has been about, about um, trying to make more of a space to make academic spaces more useful vis-a-vis um, -vis the experience of indigenous people. Of course, extraction has been more the mode and the use of uh, knowledge by academics in the pro project of colonialism, which um, is something that's sort of an ongoing um, situation. And um, so um, in this, my argument in this book is that by taking seriously indigenous voices, indigenous perspectives, sociology can really move forward theoretically in very important ways as a whole, not just uh, sort of about indigenous sociology, but really the discipline as a whole needs to be re redone. So as I said in the acknowledgments, um, I probably, uh, I have the potential to really piss off a lot of people and offend deeply a lot of people whom I respect. So, um, so I'll just talk about several of these chapters, but these are, um, I have chapter that's looking at how, how sociologists have theorized race. I love my discipline in many ways. It's, um, I feel like sociology is, 
um, I love this, the central focus on power. I love the ways that sociologists think about the relationships between individuals, uh, sort of mesolevel culture, and power structures as a whole. Um, but I also have this uh, sort of, there's room for improvement. So I want to say a few things about um, two or three of the chapters, three or four of the chapters. I think the first one I'll mention is a chapter where um, it's very relevant, I think, for what's happening right now, although the smoke is less today. Um, uh, smoke is a natural part of uh, life. Uh, a fire are natural processes. And this chapter, the second chapter in the book, I look at how um, I use fire policy as a lens for trying to show why sociologists need to be theorizing colonialism and settler colonialism in particular, and talking about the ecological dynamics of that, sort of the ways that the, that the, that the natural world has been reorganized ecologically um, as part of fire policy, or the way that fire policy has been part of that has been the imposition of colonialism and colonial structures. So how state power has been solidified through an indigenous erasure has been attempted through fire policy and the centrality of fire policy to that project. Um, like most indigenous, most people around the world have used fire for a very, very long time. And um, fire, again, is something that happens and humans are really good at um, at, at assisting in this process and, and shaping landscapes in ways that foods are more available, species are, are different um, and um, enhanced through the use of fire. So Karuk people, like many other people, have a, a very sophisticated knowledge of fire science. This on the right is a beargrass skirt. This is Kathy McCovey is holding the skirt that she made, and this is her also setting a fire. She's an important elder now who um, worked for the Forest Service for a long time, has recently retired. Um, I have video footage of her that's wonderful in connection. It's not what I was going to show you today because it's longer, but she's really wonderful. Um, and so when the Forest Service was started uh, in 1905, um, fire policy was very directly connected to genocide. And this is a, a quote I'll just read for you um, from the district ranger in 1918 from this community written to the, nat uh, the, the uh, national uh, uh, level. And he says, there's another source of fires, which I'll call the renegade whites and Indians in the district. They set fires for pure cussedness or spirit of don't care and damnedness. They have nothing at stake and don't care whether the fire damages others or not. In the pure cussedness class, the only sure way is to kill them off every time you catch them sneaking around like a bush, like a coyote, take a shot at them. So this just makes visible the very official and the very direct uh, violent connection with um, people. For Karuk people, talk about fire as medicine and their human responsibility to other species to use fire, to enhance, and to care for other species through the use of fire. So this, uh, this violence um, is there. Um, there's many more examples. Um, and then in this chapter, I talk about how um, using, a, there's a lot of interview footage because that policy work I mentioned, we had a lot of interviews. And so with um, permission from people, I use that interview, those interviews and also a lot of um, archival data to and, and draw upon the work of other people um, to talk about, uh, lay out some of this history of how as the landscape is overgrown, it really has major cultural, political, um, mental health impacts for people. Um, the third chapter is um, about the work that Ron and I did first, which is on the dam relicensing. This work was incredibly exciting for both of us because it, all of a sudden we got so much traction. And in this work, it's a lot about the politics of indigenous and Western science 
and, um, and we actually were able to use indigenous and Western science together in ways that were very effective, um, and it was uh, extremely exciting. So this is what happens behind the Klamath River dams uh, now um, every summer. And although it is not summer now there, um, it's blue-green algae that's very toxic. These photos are not doctored, but the Kruk tribe has been at the lead for this work. And so that project was um, basically about how people's diets have shifted from doing what's on the left uh, to um, a very high level of commodity and very high level of hunger in this community. Karuk people were amongst the um, wealthiest when it comes to uh, regalia, ceremonies, foods, all these things. Um, and uh, what, prior to what calling California and are now, if you look at the capitalist Western notions of wealth, are amongst the poorest. Um, this report that we put together, uh, that I was the lead for, that's um, effects of health on the, let's see, what is it called? The effects of altered diet on the health of Karuk people, um, was filed in the relicensing process for the Klamath River dams. And it was the first time a tribe had claimed that dams were giving them artificially high rates of, um, of different health, of diet-related diseases, of um, obesity, of diabetes, hypertension, these kinds of things. People went from eating very large numbers of fish uh, to very, very small and other traditional foods as well. And um, it made, I don't remember, I don't have a slide of that, but the, I had a, it made the front page of the Washington Post at the time and immediately started getting a lot of traction as one of many, many things that many, many people were doing um, and have been doing for a very long time that is pointing towards those dams uh, coming out in basically 14 months. And it's been extremely exciting. So um, did a lot of, you know, this, this, chapter looks at some of the research and sort of the way that we did it and the way that we worked together. Um, basically, up until those dams went in, um, about 10 years after those dams went in, people were eating large amounts of salmon. And um, as a result of this, um, it looks to me like Karuk people have one of the most recent and dramatic diet shifts. Um, some communities have a lot more access to traditional foods. Other communities lost it a long time ago. But for Karuk people, it's very recent. And um, I think it's one of the reasons that make this community so interesting is that people are so actively engaged in fighting back and, and sort of at the cusp of actually having quite a bit to fight for and in that sort of immediate living memory. I mean, of course, every community is fighting and people are extraordinary all over. Um, and our report also looked a lot at, it had, um, was very interdisciplinary and um, looked at social and uh, mental health dimensions as well. Of course, uh, knowledge revitalization is part of it. If you can't be go outgoing doing activities, if you can't fish, you can't teach your young people how to do it and all of the values that are, that are a part of that. So we, we had a very uh, integrated approach to it. And um, that led actually to what became two other chapters of the book and two other sort of, so in that, that chapter is, I'm looking at um, sociology of health and sort of talking about the way that our research, looking at indigenous, the connections between indigenous and Western knowledge systems and sort of how we pulled those together to get traction. Um, in the next chapter, um, I'm sort of, somewhat boldly uh, taking on gender studies within, uh, or gender scholarship within sociology, um, which again is like incredibly important work and I'm you know, terrified that people will either ignore me or be very offended. Um, but I don't want either of those things. I just want people to understand what more needs to be done and happen. And um, 
And so this started with, um, as we were going around doing a lot of the interviews that were part of that original policy piece, Ron was like, this is about, this is about masculinity. This is about, it's incredibly important that our young men are not learning how to fish and, and to, to be able to feel good about themselves and feel good in the community. And then as I was working on the um, book, um, a female colleague said, you cannot be writing only about masculinity. You have to write about femininity. And I said, that's wonderful. I'd love to, but I'm not going to make this up. And so together, she and I worked on, she did a bunch of interviews and gave, you know, it's just she and her husband, who's the person on the right, um, the director of the department, read the book word for word and just inserted all kinds of material, including great material on, um, on, on gender for, on, into this chapter specifically. Um, so in this, um, I talk about adding, this is adding the importance of gender as a dimension of environmental justice and injustice, but also the, the importance of considering the relationship between um, gender and sexuality and colonialism and the natural environment, which within sociology has really not been, um, there's so many concerns about essentialism and all these things that people just won't go there. And I think it's really doing a disservice um, because there's important pieces um, to understand. Um, the last ch uh, chapter that I'll uh, mention is um, uh, also came out of Ron. So you can see where indigenous knowledge has really shaped the direction of the book and my critique of my discipline. Um, Ron saying, this is not just about physical health as we we're going about doing the policy work. This is about mental health. And there are major mental health effects of what's happening. And so that um, became translated into, um, a, I've already been doing work on emotions and the role of emotions in social structure and, and uh, democracies and political power. And so this got translated there. Um, this came out, as did the other one, as an article, our earlier version of it. Um, certainly, there are plenty of things to have huge feelings about on the Klamath River. This is an image of the uh, 2002 fish kill in which 68,000 adult salmon um, perished as they came into the river system. And um, it's truly a profoundly tragic event that's you know, linked to the ongoing genocide and an ongoing relationship of colonialism today. And um, there's also, a, you know, very, it's, a, it's a more theoretical chapter in a lot of ways. Um, but I think I might have had a, a, art, a, a table up here. Um, but I'm really looking at theorizing how emotions are part of um, the internalization of genocide and structures and also their resistance. So, yeah, here's a, um, here's a chart. It's more whatever theory. I'm not giving the theory version of this talk. It's, it's in the book. You can get a sense of it. So in closing, um, the closing chapter and the work um, I've been doing more recently with the tribe has been about, about fire, which is mentioned in the second chapter, but also relation to climate change. And I'm thinking about some of the things, some of the ways that the indigenous people that I know and listen to think and talk about climate change in ways that are very different from how it's talked, spoken about, in the, especially in the non-native community, um, but also in the media and, and these kinds of things. Um, this is Asia Conrad, who uh, just got her master's at UFO working um, uh, with us, with me, and uh, also just had a baby. And is a t she's a total badass firefighter. She's one of those people that jumps out of helicopters and those kinds of things. Um, she's really extraordinary. And, um, and, um, and then closing with Ron, um, what, this quote from him talking about climate change as a strategic opportunity specifically in his words, we're trying to get back to an intact world. 
Climate change can be a vehicle for that because of the awareness it brings to so many about the limitations in the current management practices. We believe there's genuine interest in cut of perspectives about how to care for the land. We offer these explanations in the hope that this is true. So this sense that finally, in light of climate change, so many of the rest of us are waking up that this is um, and the words of, that we were talking about with the other video that I showed that I think are in this video too, there's so much of our current project has been a failed experiment. Um, so I think um, then the other video, um, just wait on just a second to start it, but um, this, this video that, I'll, that we'll show now was part of the climate adaptation plan and, and Bill Tripp who's up there wanted videos created as ways of uh, doing public outreach. So there's a two minute, a six minute and a half hour video that were created as a part of the climate adaptation plan and um, I'm very proud of them and excited um, about that work and got to work with real videographers to do it. So, uh, so this is just two minutes about, it's called Fire Belongs Here and it is available on the YouTube. Fear of fire is what brought us to this place where we are at today where we really have reason to fear fire. Prescribed fire can be a tool, perhaps the most powerful tool to combat the impacts of high severity fires. We have to reestablish a positive relationship with fire. Our knowledge of this landscape and the use of fire to protect our communities, to enhance the resources that we need to survive, it's here. People are beginning to see the benefits of prescribed fire more now than they have in a long time, over 100 years. When you see it, you realize, oh, it's, it's gonna be okay. <laughs> The more time goes on that we don't put fire back on these landscapes at the time and at the scale that we need to, then it's going to do it, not on our terms. Fire suppression has failed. Our first response has to be manage it. Not suppress it, but manage it. So I figured that uh, would be um, a good place. The video will have plenty of thoughts. Um, and then there's just one thanks slide that, yeah. Um, oh, then I get to do this. There we go. Um, so yeah, so that's um, some ideas and things about the book. And uh, put some stuff out there. And I'm sure there'll be uh, uh, comments or questions, uh, especially related to some of these folks. Falling back. So we're just going to have a conversation for a few minutes, then we will open it up uh, to everyone. I'd like to introduce Jacqueline Troy, who is uh, the director of, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander research here at the University of Sydney, who just helped rewrite write, uh, our new indigenous research strategy, which everyone who works here uh, should read. 
So I'm going to ask a question of Kari, and then we're just going to open this up uh, to a conversation. So one of the things that gets me at the very beginning of this book, and you did talk a little bit about it, but the, the, the book opens uh, with you talking a little bit about what you never learned, right? Even in the, one of the most radical school districts in the US in Berkeley, uh, California. So on the one hand, you talk about the, I mean, the purposeful disappearance of, the making invisible of indigenous peoples, both in your education earlier on and in the discipline of sociology, which you referred to. So the disappearance of, uh, of practice, this sort of discourse of erasure across the educational spectrum. But on the other hand, you talk about the book being an active or an act of resistance to such disappearing. And the, the point you say is that the book is an exercise in reweaving the native presence back into sociology uh, and social science. So I, I've got two questions there for discussion. First is just to ask you to talk a little bit more about the role of the academy in making what can really only be described as ongoing violence against indigenous people unseen. Right? What is our role? What is the academy's role? What's the university's role? What's education's role uh, in the making of invisibility? And I guess we'll start there because that really has to be a part of what we're talking about here uh, as well with the indigenous strategy. Thank you. Is this on? Yeah. Um, Thank you, that's a great question. And it's a great segue into this work is very different from my first book. And I think a lot of people, although I was actually working um, on it at the same time as I was doing the writing Living in Denial, I was actually doing a lot of this work with Ron. But it is a very different project. And I think that it, um, it, it, it looks at some people like, what the hell, what is she doing? And it's got such a different direction. But I think that this business about the, the linking and, the, and the, the erasure, and there's, you know, I'm interested in privilege and environmental justice too, so is, is a link. Certainly, um, you know, for me, it's been um, life-changing and incredibly eye-opening. Uh, the longer I work in this community, the more I begin to understand. I'm sure I only understand the very beginning of that erasure. And um, so I'd actually, I'm not the best person probably in the room to speak to that question. So, be, <laughs> um, but as much as I understand, certainly, you know, sociology as a as a discipline is is sort of in this whole modernist idea of some people being, you know, savages and other people being civilized, and that. Sociology was meant to study the this new social arrangements in the um, urban, you know, that are happening in urban settings, and that you know anthropology would study the so-called primitive people and all these things. So, so much of what is considered acceptable and should be studied is, in my discipline, is shaped by that those assumptions, and it makes it um, really a hostile environment. And so, if you there's a couple articles that have been done recently, one of them by a former graduate student of mine, 
um, looking at how how are indigenous people spoken about by sociologists, and it's very pathologizing. Like, it's almost 95% of the 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 usage and the phrase is the uh, studies uh, research is very pathologizing language is about about drug addiction or you know all these things and no context for colonialism. So. Uh, sociology and many disciplines are very much the vectors, the active vectors of colonialism, of, of, of this discourse of knowledge extraction and um, normalizing a certain worldview. And that is absolutely true still today. And it has to do even with how we interact with each other um, and how we interact in spaces. And uh, for me, um, you know, there's sort of the whole competitive, individualistic, I am constantly humbled um, and by, um, the things that I learned from my native colleagues about how to be in the world and that are uh, so much better. And I can only, I, I don't understand how um, people endure, none of us should endure the way things are. We all need to be a part of changing this. Um, so that, I don't know if that's a, sort of off the cuff, um, but, uh, but very much um, part of the normalization and just that this is the only way and this is the best way and this is what knowledge looks like. I mean, there's so many layers and layers and layers that you could you could answer that question. Certainly knowledge politics is big in this. And I don't know if Jacqueline, you wanna to speak to that. Uh, well, first I'd like to say something that I guess brings the Gadigal into the room by using their language. So, Ninari, Nalawangun, Varibachiri, Gadinurada. So we are sitting here on the very beautiful country of the, the Gadigal people, the people who are responsible particularly for ceremony and looking after those lovely grass trees that you see as you come in through our city um, road entrance to Sydney University. Many of them are in flower at the moment, so I think they are a kind of a metaphor for this area for what we've just seen and heard Carrie talking about. And I think also bring into um, this room uh, what you're just saying, which is that, um, and your question, <laughs> which is that why wouldn't we be listening to what Indigenous people have got to say about everything? Because apart from anything else, it's really, really interesting. And it's also fun to be involved with the environment. Um, those plants at the moment are flowering all over our campus. So there are these wonderful big spears, literally, they were used to make spears by Aboriginal men particularly. Um, and at the top of the spears, you see these beautiful tiny little white flowers at the moment covered in native bees in particular. They look like bushflies, but they're not. They look like flies, houseflies, little tiny ones, but we call them bushflies here, Carrie, in case you don't know, they're really little. They get into your eyes, they get into everything, don't they, Australians, <laughs> in the summer? So, but these are actually bees. And of course, flies are pollinators as well, so they attract that. Um, you can turn them into a lovely sugary drink. Um, and the, the, the plant itself um, contains a resin that you can bind anything with. It's one of the strongest binding glues that, or, you know, things to put things together. People would put axe heads onto shafts, you know, stone axe heads and sit them in place and then bind them with cindies. But when this resin dried, they would use it in making canoes or, you know, any kind of watercraft. So um, incredibly um, uh, important resource. So the Gadigal are the people who are the Gadi... Um, uh, what do you say, Gadi Mada, so the people who are responsible for 
um, making more gaddy, doing the, the increased ceremonies. So this speaks back to what you were just talking about with salmon and looking after country with fire to make sure that things will keep going. So the, the Gadigal people here are, are not doing that ceremony to my knowledge, but the Gaddi are still continuing on, largely curated by people putting them into pots and things. But unless they're burnt, they don't thrive. So their trunks are black because they need fire and people now will burn them with um, artificial torches in order to encourage them to thrive. So um, there are a whole lot of things that don't happen if Indigenous people are not listened to. Our disciplines suffer as a result of not having this broader world view, this knowledge. Still a lot of the world is Indigenous. I travel a lot internationally visiting Indigenous communities. I've just come back from Pakistan. I was at the University of Sindh. The entire university is Indigenous. Having a discussion about not being Indigenous is a bit you know, everything they're doing is of their local area. The Vice-Chancellor of the University of Sindh walked me around the campus and he's just turning it into an edible campus so that it's just a natural thing to do because right up to his level, he knows how to grow things. He just sent me a picture of one of his ancient, ancient type of goats that he's got. You know, you see them on these stellae and things of these goats reaching up eating eating trees 3,000 years ago or more. And um, the same goat, his goats had three kids this morning, one goat um, gave him. So this is a normal conversation with a vice-chancellor of the oldest university in Pakistan. Pakistan, you've got to remember, of course, is since 1947. But in and around that area, 400 universities for thousands of years. So what we think of and hold so dear in this Western Academy is actually really very new and very raw and really, as, as Carrie said, needs to be better informed. At the very least, there's this world of knowledge and scholarship that Indigenous people have and continue that's just not being paid attention to. My entire conversation over the last um, night and day has been with people about hunting practices and um, my own little team, I suggested to them that we go down to Royal National Park, I knock over a feral deer, we have a cook-up, we can bring a whiteboard if we really have to so we can do all that stuff that the <laughs> university expects us to do, but we'll go fishing, we'll eat brim and we'll be blackfellas on country and so, you know, this is... How much more fun is that than being stuck in some room with, you know... So, anyway, <laughs> so <stop> now. <laughs> you I mean, you're... you're you're segueing to the second part of the question that I wanted to get at, right? The first part of the question is this sort of politics of making invisible, but the other is the radical potential of seeing, right? And this is what I wanted to ask, um, ask Kari, uh, you know, uh, in particular about the book, because what you're doing is you're bringing out these ecological practices. You're bringing attention to this relationship between, between animals and humans, between between plants and species and land management and culture and health, you're bringing all of these connections, which is, of course, you know, the, the way that the relationship has been for a long time, but the, there's, a, there's, there's a radicalness to that site. And I, I'm just curious about, uh, just about your take on that and about how that, ha how that works in the academy to, to, to do something in the scholarly way, in the same way that Jackie's talking about 
putting the Gaddy trees at the entrance to campus is just a radical statement. Yeah, thank you for that. I think, um, I mean, the short answer is my career has benefited incredibly from indigenous knowledge. Um, and I think that it is a very uh, tricky thing to say because of the relationship, because academic institutions have benefited from indigenous knowledge, you know, all along the way. Um, but in the sense like that, you know, that these comments that when I was with my colleague Ron, um, doing the interviews for the altered diet report that went into the, you know, was on behalf of the tribe in the dam relicensing. And, um, you know, he's like, okay, we have to, this is about masculinity. We have to, um, we have to talk about emotions. And so I've been, you know, those became chapters in my book. And I'm a, you know, Ron is co-author on the articles and I actually wanted him to be co-author on the book. Um, but the way the copyright worked, we weren't able to do that and have it be copyrighted to the tribe for who, I don't know, somebody's lawyer said that. Um, but it is because this is more sort of geared towards um, the academic world, it, it felt more, it felt more, it felt okay to, to me also to, to let that go. But, but for sure, he, you know, it's, it is, um, my career has benefited from that. And I think that um, it's, it, it's, I mean, there's a lot of politics around it, but I think this is knowledge that the world needs for human survival, and exactly how it makes sense for that to come forward isn't for me to say, but it looks like Jackie was gonna say something there, if I misread your language. Well, part of the, the indigenous strategy is to make Gadigal more visible on campus, right? So what, what is so radical about doing that, about, about making that visibility important? It's radical because uh, people are expecting universities to do something different, to be doing, I guess, what we're doing now, which um, perhaps this conversation might not be the most popular conversation in every quarter because we're saying, why shouldn't Indigenous people be co-authors if they don't have an academic track record? Well, I've pushed back against that with... The last two journals I was general editor for, I've um, now got a journal called Ab Original um, and a journal of First Nations um, scholarship and we expect people to have their um, colleagues in their research as their co-authors. Um, Australian Aboriginal Studies, you would think that would be full of Australian Aboriginal comment. Well, it wasn't until I got my stickies on editing it. <laughs> and um, I had to really help change a mindset that somehow what Aboriginal people have got to say is just as scholarly. I don't know that it's any different. Um, so having, having these, um, the, the Gaddy, the, the trees themselves, the Xantharia, um, tell the story of their engagement with humanity over probably tens of thousands of years. If we Aboriginal people have been in Australia for at least 72,000 years, there's been people, modern humans as we call them, um, in Australia for this great length of time. And the, the whole place adapted in a symbiotic relationship with each other. We as people have adapted. This is exactly what Carrie was just talking about. So. It's a radical statement to put something like that, which depends for its survival on Aboriginal knowledge. It can be reproduced in the way that 
this university really in Australia depends for its knowledge on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Let's face it, this is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander land. How can anybody sit here and not bring that thinking into everything they do? Like what, what bit of what you would do on a daily basis at, this, basis at this place would you not want to think, oh, okay, so... What, you know, what is an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander perspective on this? What does this mean from an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander point of view? We're sitting on a kangaroo ground. Did you, did any, who of you, who of you know this? Some of you would have heard me talk about this or read our design principles booklet. But that ground, we rise from Lake Victoria, the magnificently named pond, which was a soak where people raised fish. Um, and also had it as a waterhole for kangaroo. The whole area was a lovely grassy area where kangaroo liked to hang out, which is great. And that's how the Aboriginal community designed it. All along the sides, much like we've got now, there was bushland, but in the past there would have been lighter scrub that the kangaroo could rest under. We even have trees we call kangaroo trees. And then there is thicker, thicker bushland. Again, for kangaroo to feel comfortable, but also when you're hunting them so that when they've got a three-metre spear through their body, they're not going to get very far before you can kill them and finish them off and feast on them. So people would drive the kangaroo up the hill to about where the quadrangle is now using fire and smoke and the fear of the kangaroo. But they were dealt with, you know, much more humanely than the way Australia deals with other animals in abattoirs and things, not mentioning the racehorse report recently. But, you know, this, this whole place, why wouldn't you come to work every day and think, ah, oh, yeah kangaroo ground you know so um i think that this is the radicalness that we're trying to bring in having an indigenous research strategy is not just a matter of oh let's have a statement and a pretty booklet it's about okay let's think every day let's let's get ourselves thinking about what it is that is indigenous about um almost anything we do so i'm going to segue there's a lot to the book the, I mean, you went quickly through the chapters. Um, I want to ask a question before we open it up to everyone. I, I want to ask a question that's radical in a different way, I think, and that makes some connections uh, to a lot of what's happening. So you, you've got this chapter on emotion, right? on the relationship between emotion and environmental justice and uh, a sort of relationship between environmental damage and emotional uh, damage and grief. And there's so much more discussion now, especially among young activists, young activists of color, intersectional climate activists talking about a variety of different kinds of grief and anxiety. But it's about anxiety. It's not just about climate anxiety. It's about the intersection of a number of different kinds of anxieties and grief. So we did some research here last year just on a whole bunch of different shock events on flooding, on heat waves, on bushfire, and found that kind of anxiety, not just fear, but you know, existential anxiety about the future, uh, and, and existential anxiety about loss of connection to place, as a really important part of what people go through during shock events. And it certainly reminds me uh, of a lot of history. And I'm just... As people get more interested in this kind of anxiety, I'm trying to figure out a way to link that back to some of the work I've done on environmental justice, because it's certainly environmental and climate justice activists, youth activists, that are bringing this up. So 
Can you talk a little bit more just about the relationship between anxiety, intersectional anxiety, climate anxiety, and environmental justice? That's a great question, thank you. Um, So one thing I'll say, we'll see what comes out. <laughs> a lot of things that could be said. Um, one thing I'll say is I think about, you know, we often think about emotions in very psychological terms, but as a sociologist, I really think about emotions in psychological terms, but also in a cultural and social context and the, re the relationship that, that emotions have with power and with resisting power or with enforcing power. and. Um, I think actually a, a really important emotion that's in all of this area, and it was certainly relevant in this book chapter, um, is shame. But I think that's relevant um, around climate politics in general. I think it's very much driving the politics on the far right, shame around climate, but shame around a lot of things. And um, I think for sure it's used uh, to target people who are being targeted in so-called oppressed groups. It's used to instill sexism, racism, um, homophobia, shame is a really important um, group social control emotion. Um, and sociologists have thought about the role of shame in particular. Um, I, I should read more of some of their work, and maybe I will now. But um, and, and so, I mean, what we did in this book, in that chapter, was based again on Ron's, uh, Ron's work, and he's a co-author, he and I have co-authored a piece, paper in Theory and Society about emotions um, in environmental justice in which we argue that, um, that there are harms from, there are, the, the emotional harms are real harms, not just in the sense of like the way that a psychologist would maybe theorize like with the DSM, whatever, and sort of these, these things that really instill normative notions of mental health that can really be incredibly vehicles for enforcement of colonialism or racism or sexism. But the way that emotions and how we experience emotions is part of, I mean, I think um, sociologists have done excellent work on emotions in, in their form in power structures. And this is what we're trying to draw on more in there. Um, and the way that people see how we, how we what we understand of the world, that, that emotion and thinking are very much linked, and it's not we understand through our emotions in part. And so, what is it? What is the knowledge, um, and what is our embodiment of that knowledge? Um, how is that part of what's happening with emotion? How are emotions a part of that? So, I th how are emotions a form of embodied knowledge, and um, and how do they translate into? outrage and act, how does outrage translate into action and resistance and those kinds of things, um, or paralysis. So we think, I mean, there's so many things that probably will be done around emotions and climate and climate anxiety. One thing that is interesting, I just had the thought now, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion right now, I'm late on reviewing a paper that's about people not having, uh, choosing not to uh, have children. Um, and uh, you know that, that there's there there's a dominant discourse around climate anxiety that's very much from pretty privileged middle class white communities, and then there's other discourses around climate anxiety or climate change that um, indigenous scholars Kyle White and others are um, you know many others are pushing back on or sort of think about it this way instead. And certainly the notion from 
my colleague Ron about climate change as a strategic opportunity as part of that sort of different way of, you know, um, oh shoot, where the connection that I was gonna make between these two thoughts, it just went away. I hate it when that happens, especially if I'm sitting in front of all of you now, really I'll be just paralyzed and it'll never come back. Um, oh, I know what it was, that, that for those who, who talk about sort of the, in the more privileged experiences of climate anxiety, it's kind of, I, this is, these are my people, right? This is my, I'm white, I'm middle class. Um, the book I did about Norway is sort of my own community. It, it, I'm very sympathetic, I, I, I understand it, I, I live that experience myself. And yet it's also interesting because these are people who um, we've actually been stripped, we've already gone through so much loss for many generations back of these relationships, of this kind of embedded system. So in a way it's kind of interesting <laughs> that people are having that, I just had that thought now. Um, as compared to um, the ways that, um, you know, the native folks I'm close to, especially folks in the Kruk tribe, talk about climate change or experience climate change and the trauma, which is very real and is manifesting in high youth suicide rates and um, high rates of, um, you know, other, other forms of struggle, of depression. And so yeah, their emotions are a big part of it and we need to, uh, of the trauma of what's happening in the present moment as they always have been, and I think we do need to think about them not just sort of in a psychological way, but in a context. And for sure, there's so much that we can do to take care of each other in this moment now. And I think that maybe that's the most important question we should be asking around emotions is how do we use this as an opportunity to learn across um, and really take care of each other in the moment that we're in. I, um, I think that this point about <clears throat> a sort of white middle class anxiety around climate change is really important because that tends to be, there's an opposition being set up very broadly across the world between people who are in power, so the rulers of governments and the educated groups of people from university sector and government advisors and policy makers. And then there's what Indigenous people are just doing to get on with coping with every day. Now, climate change, this kind of massive um, environmental and dietary change that is brought on by having your country invaded and taken over and um, is something that Aboriginal peoples around the world have been dealing with, I'd say, pretty chronically um, for at least six or seven hundred years. You know, the European invasions of other parts of the world were catastrophic um, and mostly made immediate environment change and, cli and climate change because once you destroy microsystems then the bigger systems change as well. So most of the indigenous people of the world one way or another have had to shift their diets and particularly in the last few hundred years um, I'm a victim of this myself. I've got hypertension, I borderline diabetes, high cholesterol. Um, I was looking at the, 
I'm actually relatively healthy for my age, but I've just got these. I have my my system's adapted for different kinds of eating. Now you would sit here looking at me and think, but you look white. You know, you get that. It doesn't matter what you look like if you've got a genetic predisposition. And both sides of my genetic makeup are strongly indigenous and highly adapted to particular kinds of areas. I am not adapted to eating a lot of very high fat. Um, we weren't the neither side of my family were people who did that. Um, we certainly ate a lot of river fish. Try and get a fish out of the Snowy River now. I, I challenge anyone. I loved our discussion about getting rid of dams. You know, in Australia, in Australia that has the least amount of water of any continent in the world, we have a hydroelectric scheme. We don't just have one. We've got snowy number two coming up and snowy number three, which is, and they're all actually happening. These are not hypotheticals and they're just job creation. Can't we create jobs around other forms of energy making? Um, you know, my own totem, which is a small river fish, um, is being eaten by, um, it's carnivorous, but it can't compete with something that's bigger and more carnivorous, which is the trout. You know, our rivers have been seeded with trout so that sports fishermen can eat the trout. Well, we can't even really get the trout. I'm supposed to have a permit if I'm going to um, hunt trout. You know, you've got to have permits to hunt feral animals and all these other stupid things that, you know, like the, the, my, my country is now full of deer, um, which are delicious and I'd happily help reduce their population. Um, but, um, you know, it's not allowed and this sort of... So, I mean, we've got... I, I talk to people again in Swat in North Pakistan. Their rivers are full of trout because people wanted to go there fishing. Their rivers have been destroyed by deforestation. So they have uh, massive landslides now. Their, cl their climate ecology has changed. Um, with climate change, the melts from the Himalayas are much more um, dramatic. You know, they have flooding. They've got, you know, all the sort of problems. This is a normal problem for people who are Indigenous around the world because we're still trying to, you know, even someone like myself still wants to sort of eat off the land. Much, I'd much rather eat freshly killed meat than something straight from the supermarket. But it's constraints on it. And so... Um, our world has been dramatically... So our trauma is more around frustration at not being able to have access to continue to do the things that will at least mitigate against some of these catastrophic climate change consequences. Um, and um, so, again, I go back to we... The world needs to give us more of a free reign as Indigenous people to have a proper voice. So um, have a voice into the policy making and decisions of government. So there are all these terrified white fellows sitting around in the world like, oh my God, you know, we're going to die. Um, well, you won't. We know how not to to die, how to live, how to still make make the world work for us, you know. Um, that, that wonderful Vice-Chancellor who's turning his whole university into an edible campus. And he put up shade cloths so that shade cloth parts. We have to, just the other day, everyone suffering from heat stroke, walking down Western Avenue. It's a fabulous Grand Avenue if you lived in the north of the, of the world where there's very little sun for most of the year and it's cold and you need open spaces where people who are very pale can get, you know, sun onto them to stop them becoming vitamin D deficient. In boiling hot Sydney... That should have a huge cover over it. You know, 
the VC of the University of Sindh would have shade cloth over the whole thing. That's what he's done. So, you know, sensible climate-adapted practices, it is changing, but we, we're not all going to die right now. And the world is certainly changing rapidly, but we know how to change with it. We've got, you know, at least, as I said, you know, 700 or so years of experience. But before that, our peoples were all invading each other anyway, so, you know. Yeah, but I just, I think that that idea of the relationship between anxiety and grief on the one hand, indigenous knowledge, practice, and that opportunity that Ron talked about, right? I just, I find that fascinating because it's happening in so many different places simultaneously. Um, let's open it up. Uh, I just looked down at, embarrassingly at my dusty um, runners and you two look like you haven't been. I've been out in paddocks <laughs> making sure that my 12 horses aren't going to burn to death if... Um, the shit hits the fan in Canberra, which it very likely will. And it will be by, you had a slide on it, fire bugs. It's not, I looked out the window then, I don't know how many of you noticed, but there's fork lightning. So um, that's going to start fires. That'll start spot fires. That's, that's dangerous. So I'm worried about that. But I'm not worried in a way that I don't feel I can cope with it. I know what to do. I suspect there's a lot of people who don't and this kind of fear is because nobody's listening to, well, okay, what do we do? Not just the alerts. I've got this app that says fires near me and it's got a whole lot of advice. I can guarantee most people would be frozen with fear looking at that advice. Have you cleaned your gutters? Most people probably never do unless they get their gardener to come along. Has the gardener blown their gutters out? I don't... You know, most people wouldn't have a clue what cleaning their gutters mean or what removing, you know, what is, what is, what is likely to burn, what is not likely to burn. You know, and also that you can just be damn unlucky. You could have done everything and you're still... So I think there's a lot. If we combine our knowledge and combine our, you know, thinking, um, then a lot of this emotion will carry us forward into a much more sophisticated discussion about the fact that things are changing, but we can do something to manage our way through it.